You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. My thing is helping people understand how our brains work so that we can be better and do better in any area of life that's important to us. So as well as bite-sized brain science, I'll be bringing you interviews and advice from experts and guests who specialize in working with entrepreneurs and leaders to help them explore potential, possibilities, and ways to be more effective. And the best bit? We can start right now. What's your talent strategy? Do you have one? It's not something I hear a lot about. And in a way, I guess that kind of makes sense because... There are so many things going on for a new business that it's often about filling a hole with whatever comes to hand, rather than drawing up a spec for a plug that will not just do the job, but also bring something new to the table. Talking to Jen Thornton about this provided a lot of insight. Jen works with companies who want to hire, retain, and develop a pipeline of top talent. And as we explore the topic of talent, we also dive into things like why trust and curiosity have a role to play in building an effective team, why power plays are fear-based tactics, and why being right is an addiction that we need to nip in the bud. Jennifer, it's very nice to be speaking to you again so soon. It is lovely to have you here. Thanks for coming in. It's so good. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Jennifer, I know that we have a lot of things that we could talk about with you today because you have such a wealth of experience um, that is really useful for any business, I guess, but um, we're talking today really about those who are in that sort of startup stage, those who are trying to start something new, and maybe those who are a little further along as well. But the one thing that jumped out at me from the information that you'd sent over was um, about talent strategy. And this may actually be an alien term to a lot of people. Can you can you just sort of outline a little bit about what people would need to know about what a talent strategy is? I'm so glad you asked about the talent strategy, especially for businesses that are in early stages. And, you know, when we start a business, we're told to make a business case or a business plan, a business strategy. And so we go out and we do things like researching the market. We research our service or our item or widget, whatever we're selling or whatever our business is about. And we make these amazing spreadsheets and we have all these numbers and everything is just perfect. But no one ever says, how are you actually going to make this happen? And that's your talent strategy. And so once you have your business model, once you have your business plan, then you have to say, okay, what's our talent strategy? How are we going to make this come true? And start to think about what type of work needs to be done. What type of positions do you need? What type of people do you need to hire? And all of those things start to come in um, to the conversation and support your actual business model. But when we're taught to create business models, we're never taught to add the talent strategy on top of it. Yeah, it's fascinating, really, because I actually was listening to a thing it was a a little video that Stephen Bartlett had posted this morning on LinkedIn. And he said that he was in year three of his business before he realized that one of his main functions was recruitment and that it was his job as an entrepreneur. And as we know, he's like really successful at what he does. But one of his main roles was to recruit exceptional people. And that doesn't really happen by accident, does it? It doesn't happen by accident. And to recruit and to retain exceptional people, you have to make 
talent a priority. It has to be as strong as a priority as your service model because it backs up your service model. It has to be as strong as maybe if you're a software company as your developers because if you're not if you don't have ex- exceptional developers, you don't have exceptional product. And so every single thing you do, everything you want to excel in means you have to find people to help you excel in that. And all everything you want to do starts with the people that you hire. And for some reason, you know, we were taught um, kind of the opposite to start with the to start with this plan and everything else comes together. I don't know. I don't know why we ever thought that or why that was ever created in our minds. But I think that you know, when you look at the history of leadership and the history of work, many times people just thought that there's just enough workers that workers mm-hmm. just do what they're told, and that's just not where we live today, and it's not how we work today. And so I think that some of those old behaviors, those old, you know, quote unquote, best practices linger with us. And for those who have moved past that, for those who understand that, you know, as a leader, one of your main priorities is to recruit and retain talent. Those people are doing much better in their business and they're doing much, they're having probably a lot more fun because when you have the right people on your team, you have so much more fun actually doing the work. Yeah, that's, that's really, that is so insightful, um, Jen. I mean, this, this whole idea that we we're we're working to historical models of what business was when it was very top-down structure. And basically you had someone at the top and maybe an elite group there as well, and then minions, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but that really isn't our world. It absolutely no. isn't. We we have to be collaborators. We have to be willing to engage and innovate and all those wonderful things in order to create the businesses that we actually want. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there was something else actually that um, came up as well. And I think we'll sort of find a thread that goes is going through this conversation. But one of the things um, that I've been reading recently is Alyssa Cohen's book, From Startup to Grown Up. And in that, one of the things and tendencies that she talks about, and I think this maybe also plays into what we're talking about here, is the idea that founders and startups tend to almost replicate themselves in their recruitment process. They don't look beyond their kind of um, their working DNA, if you like. What what's your your take on that? Oh, it's so funny that you bring that up because you're absolutely right. And I think Alyssa Cohen has some really great points in that book. You know, we hire people like us because we want to be around them. When someone comes in and feels different to us, you know, we're like, well, they're just different. They're, you know, and our brains don't always see the value that difference has in the workplace. What also happens is if we don't have a talent strategy and we don't understand who and why we need to hire for something, then we end up hiring more people like us, which means there's a ton of work that everyone does really well and a ton of work that no one knows how to do. No one wants to do it and no one's good at it. And Mm -hmm. that's, again, why you think back to that talent strategy, because if you say, all right, you know, we, you know, this is the direction we're taking the business. We need this type of person to really take over marketing. We need this type of person to lead our development group. We need this type of person to lead our analytics. And we're going to be really comfortable with the differences because Mm -hmm. those differences are what really brings all of the viewpoints to the table and all the different ways in which a problem can be solved. But again, if we don't have a talent strategy, we just keep repeating our own, 
you know, things like us and things that feel similar Mm -hmm. to us and things we really understand. But to have a really strong business, you've got to bring people in that challenge the way you think, that challenge the way you want to do something and help you become a better leader, help you make better and more informed decisions. Yeah, yeah, that that really does seem so important to this process as well, you know, that A, we're willing to invest the time in figuring out what it is that we don't have ourselves, what it is that we need to add to the the recipe, if you like, to make it a new or a better recipe. But also maybe this idea of trusting the unknown that you're bringing in. Is that something that you see people coming up against? How do they react to that? What is the, what's the the fix? I love that you bring up trust. Trust is so important in the talent strategy process. Um, So I think that, I don't know if there's a silver bullet fix. I wish there was, Um, (laughs) but that would make life too easy. It wouldn't be as fun. Um, When you think about bringing in people and you think about starting to create that trust, you have to get really honest with what you're good at um, and start getting curious about those things that someone else is good at. Because when mm-hmm. you take the time to get to know them, you take the time to ask questions, to get curious, to learn from that person, you will automatically become more trustworthy towards them because you're going to realize how much more information they have about a particular topic than you have. But Mm. if you're not taking the time to have great conversations in the workplace, you're not taking the time to really get to know someone and get curious, then it is hard to build trust. It's hard to be okay with someone making decisions around your business. And, you know, we see it all the time where someone starts a fantastic business and then they get to a place where they don't enjoy it. They don't like what they're Mm. having to do. And it's because their job evolves and they haven't thought about, where do I play the best role? Where do I provide the most success to this organization? And being okay where that's not at and hiring people who can do that. And Mm -hmm. it it breaks my heart every time I see someone who starts a company and just doesn't enjoy it um, because their job's evolved and they haven't thought about how to, you know, stay in their core genius and how to continue to do what they love. But you can do that. You, but you have to again be very thoughtful to it. You have to create trust. Um, you have to be um, open to you know looking at things differently. Um, but the price at the other end, or the payoff, I guess, at the other end of that is you know really enjoying what you've built, and that's incredibly important. So it seems like this idea of having that trust and building those relationships leads very neatly into the the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is your conversational intelligence coaching. Can you give me an idea what that is about? Absolutely. So conversation intelligence is really taking um, what we've all been told to think about emotional intelligence, and it takes it to the next level. It helps us start to understand how our language in the workplace impacts people's level of fear and innovation and how we use language and how we understand our chemical reactions um, will impact our business results. You know, we just talked about trust and with trust, you get innovation, you get problem solving, you get all of these things that can drive your business and do great things. But if you are leading from a point of fear 
you are shutting down the opportunity for trust and innovation. You're actually shutting down the parts of the brain that control emotions, that control problem solving, that can come up with new ideas. The higher the fear, the less access you have towards those things you're wanting. And so conversation intelligence really helps us start to think about how to reduce fear in the workplace so that we can Mm -hmm. increase trust and innovation through our language. And I noticed as well that you'd you'd mentioned, um, and I, I'm not sure really how this connects, but it, it seems like they should be somehow connected, this idea of trusting others, but also the idea of being addicted to being right. And maybe that can be extended a little bit to, you know, being addicted to having the best idea or having your idea executed. Um, is, is that something that is, um, is what you're seeing or is that just <laughs> what I'm seeing? Yeah, we see that addiction to being right. And it's interesting. They've done research on um, individuals who have addictions. So if you are addicted to sugar or substance or shopping, my favorite addiction, shopping, (laughs) you know, and then when you, we all know, we can all accept that when you're addicted to something, you get a dopamine hit and then that's not enough. So you need more of it to get the bigger dopamine hit and that, you know, starts to grow. The same thing happens to someone who's addicted to being right. When they're right, they get a dopamine hit. But then the next time they have to be even more right. They have to be more in control. And that is an addiction. And you have to understand that that can happen. Because when we have leaders who um, maybe have grown up in their or grown in their career really quickly, maybe they were, you know, top performers very early. And so they kind of skyrocketed their career and they were always right they can start to get addicted to that. But then what happens as as their career progresses, if you are addicted to being right and you can't hear the truth from anyone in your in your realm, your your team, your business partners, your cross-functional partners, then you're not no you can't know everything. You can't see what the actual truth is and you start to make decisions that are very much in a silo without any input. And, um, you know, I'm based in the U.S. and there's some great examples of U.S. companies that that happened to. Um, Kodak, which was a huge U.S. company that sold, you know, film and cameras, they actually had um, the first digital camera. And they thought that no one would ever want a digital camera. That's silly. Why would you ever want that? Well, because they weren't open to new ideas and they thought they were so right on what they knew. They did not listen to other people who invented that. They didn't listen to him. And, you know, the rest is history. Everyone else moved forward with a digital camera and they didn't. Mm. Netflix is another great example. Um, There was a company in the U.S. called Blockbusters who had stores that you bought or you did buy, but you rented DVDs. And Blockbuster CEO thought the idea of having um, DVDs sent to your house was silly. Someone would want to go and get it, right? And so they could have bought Netflix for pennies on the dollar. Now we know Netflix is doing amazingly well and Blockbuster is belly up and is no longer there. But those are examples of being addicted to your own ideas and not seeing what's coming. So here's the question then. If you are addicted to being right, or you suspect you may be, or that someone on your team is, how do you help them to recover from that addiction? 
Well, with all good addictions, admitting is the first step, um, as we know. (laughs) But what you have to start doing is I always, when I work with high-level executives, I always say when you drive home at the end of the day or, you know, in the world where we work a lot of remote at the end of the day and you're kind of closing up, ask yourself, what did I learn today? Mm. And if you didn't learn something from your team then there's a good chance you're probably addicted to your own ideas because people aren't telling you anything else. Mm -hmm. And then you have to start getting curious. You have to start using your language to open up conversations. And one of the things that I teach all leaders to say, especially those who have a little bit of that addiction, is when someone comes to you with an idea that you don't like or you don't think will work, you can be honest and you can say, I don't see it. But then you follow that up with, but change my mind. Mm. Because what that says is I don't see it, but I'm open to seeing your point. I'm open to differences of opinion. I'm open to learning and being curious. And Mm. that creates this conversation where if that person has a fantastic idea, now you're learning about it. And it just really changes the atmosphere on how people problem solve and um, think of innovation where you can say things like, I don't see it, but change my mind. And you're able to talk about these differences of opinions in a way that's comfortable, in a way that's productive. And oftentimes people change the executive's mind. Oftentimes they go, you know what? You're right. I haven't seen that. Or maybe somewhere in the middle, there's an idea that we can use, but it's such a great statement for leaders to use to keep innovation Mm. flowing in the workplace. And just leading on from that, actually, as you were talking about it, something came up and it's this idea that, you know, when we're, when we ourselves are in a good frame of mind, then we are much more likely to be able to approach things that way. But when you are maybe in a stressful or chaotic or overworked frame of mind, you're probably less likely to be able to hear those things coming in. So is, is, is the whole self-care idea, is, is that something that you're um, recommending to people as part of keeping all this in balance or is is there another way? Um, self-care is always good. I mean, there's never a reason not to take care of ourselves mentally, physically, and spiritually. I think that in the workplace, when we start to feel overwhelmed or stressed, we have to recognize there's a good chance that we are having our own situation with fear. We're dealing with our own fear. And part of self-care is coming to terms with the fear you may be having. And Mm -hmm. so if there's something going on in your business, so it's a difficult time, instead of just focusing 100% on the problem and just trying to control it and clamping down and being highly directive, stop and say, what am I in fear of? If I wasn't in fear, what would be my next move? Because Mm -hmm. you can't manage your way through a problem with all fear. Um, because you're closing down the access to all the really good ideas. And so that's the first step when you're overwhelmed and, you know, just everything is going on. Self-care is around being friendly with the fears that you have and being honest with those and becoming friends with them so that, you know, you can manage them. Yeah. And I mean, even just, I guess, from a very basic level of you know, if somebody comes to you and you, <laughs> you've been doing a, an all nighter and you have, you know, not eaten and you're, you turn on the hangry head, then <laughs> you're probably not going <laughs> to, you're not going to be able to work so well with the incoming information. Yeah, a lot of overload there. 
But just um, there was one other thing that you've mentioned again in your information, um, which is probably quite fascinating just from a an observer point of view. Um, but it sounds like you've seen a lot of power plays in the companies uh, and in boardrooms and so on that you work with. What are the kind of things that people can say, oh, you know what, I think I see a power play going on here? So power plays are all based in fear also. And one of the things that I think that we lack in today's workforce is understanding the power of collaboration. And so what happens is, you know, maybe you start out and you're an individual contributor and you kind of do your job and then you get promoted to manager and you're so focused on your team, taking care of your team. Then maybe you're a director, a vice president, you know, whatever you're growing and your career is progressing. But then at some point, we have to start thinking about protecting the organization over our own best interest. Mm-hmm. And that's where power plays start to come in. When you have a, um, you know, the group of people who are, you know, in charge for lack of better um, term, and they're protecting their self and their team over protecting the company, then that's the power plays. It's, it's you know, saying, well, I'm not giving up the, this resource because my team needs it. Well, but does the, what does the organization need? Mm-hmm. And that's where you start to see a lot of infighting in um, leadership groups is because they're protecting themselves versus protecting the objective of the organization and understanding that give and take and understanding that sometimes one department will get more than the other, but that could flip the next quarter. But if we're mm-hmm. constantly fighting for our own personal needs, it becomes really miserable because it's like every day you wake up to go to battle instead of saying, hey, I've got this amazing organization who's got this amazing concept and I am here as a collective group to support it. They're just really busy kind of, you know, protecting their ground or protecting their land. You know, there's a term that I hear a lot, you know, land grabbing where executives try Mm -hmm. to land grab. They take someone else's department or they try to take, you know, something that they don't really belong in, but they want to, you know, show that they're so great. But all of that comes from the fear of not, um, you know, looking good in front of their boss or the fear of not protecting their team. Um, Again, it's all goes back to that fear and not protecting the greater good. From all the things that we've talked about here today, Jen, the thing that is coming to my mind is that we're really talking about um, abundance versus loss or lack, aren't we? Um, it's it's being able to see that for what it is as it plays out in our daily actions. You know, people are probably, you know, doing all their mantras and manifestations and all of these other things. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, that that talk has to be walked as well as we take our actions. It does. And it's not easy. It is not easy to Mm. wake up every day, especially if you have um, started an organization, especially if you're responsible for your finances, the finances of the company, the finances for the people who you provide a paycheck to. There's a lot of like just core fear in that. Um, And so it's not easy to continue to walk in what you talk, um, but it is something that when people master it, they can really, um, again, find that joy as a leader, find that joy as someone who has started started a company. Um, But when we sit in fear, it's so hard to enjoy it. And, you know, there's nothing that's more exciting to watch someone create something and love it every single day when they wake up. Mm. Jen, that is really 
Really wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Um, and for anybody who has taken a message or heard something that they needed to hear from what Jennifer's had to say today, I would absolutely encourage you to go and look at some of the resources that Jen has. Um, do you want to give us the main website for people to go to, Jen? I'll also put it in the show notes, but just so we absolutely know where we're going. Absolutely. So you can go to 304coaching.com. We have a lot of resources there. You can go to our YouTube channel at Jen Thornton at 304 Coaching, and then you can connect with me on LinkedIn at Jen Thornton ACC. Super. That is amazing. Thank you so much. I will see you in a minute. Thank you. Have a great day. You're still here? Great. Look, I know there's a lot to choose from out there, so thanks for flying with Ambition Incubator Airlines, and I look forward to seeing you on board again soon. Seriously, though, thank you for tuning in. My guests and I love hearing about what inspires you on the show and what advice has made a difference in your life or work and what you'd like more of. So get in touch. If you want to know about my other work, head over to ambitionincubator.com for details. And don't forget to hit subscribe for more great interviews, advice, and bite-sized brain science every week. 